attorney at law, advocate at heart. We're back. And of course, I had to make up for the short break with a very special guest. Dr. Robin Perucci is a superstar neonatologist. She has over 20 years of experience in practice and caring for infants and their mothers in the earliest of stages. She earned her master's degree in bioethics, and she works full-time in the neonatal intensive care unit of a large regional medical center in Wisconsin. Additionally, she has extensive experience in perinatal palliative care, and she has been published in multiple non-peer and peer-reviewed articles. She recently served as amicus curiae in the Supreme Court decision Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. With the support of doctors like Dr. Perucci, this decision ultimately overturned Roe v. Wade and returned the issue of abortion to state-level lawmakers. Dr. Perucci is not only an associate scholar with the Charlotte Lozier Institute, but she is also chair of the American College of Pediatricians Pro-Life Committee. Now, I know that earlier this week, the March for Life took place in D.C., and this is the first year that the March for Life has taken place without Roe. But I really recommend this episode for all pregnant moms whose goal is to have a healthy and successful delivery, regardless of your position on abortion. Neonatology is a relatively young specialty that developed over the past 50 years, but has advanced tremendously in the past 25 years. And in this episode, Dr. Perucci, as a neonatologist, is going to offer some valuable insights into hospital selection considerations, embryology, and the field of neonatal care for NICU and preterm babies in the womb. This all matters because in the US, as of 2021, one in 10 babies are born premature. And preterm birth was listed among the CDC's top five leading causes of infant death. It's also worth noting that black mothers make up over 35% of the national abortion rate, but only 13% of the population. And even aside from abortion, infant mortality is over two times higher for black infants than white infants. So this is definitely a path that we want the wisdom, care, and experience of doctors like Dr. Perucci walking alongside all parents and moms. Her care and concern for life from the earliest stages should not be countercultural. It's a fact that neonatologists are able to provide a level of specialized consultation and expertise in pregnancy and aftercare that abortion providers are simply not equipped to analyze. And I can't wait for you all to hear from her. So let's jump in. I'm so glad that you could hop on here with me tonight. I know that you have to be super, super busy saving babies' lives. Um, yeah. But would you tell my listeners a little about yourself? So I'm something called a neonatologist. Uh, so it's a glorified name for critical care for babies. And uh, so I'm, I'm double boarded. I'm a pediatrician um, as well as then the neonatal boards. Um, and I also have a background in medical ethics because it's I'm a glutton for punishment, but no, it's all... <laughs> also fascinating and it's an important part of what I get to do when you're dealing with um, edge of viability and just uh, making decisions that with families and walking with them through some stuff that you wouldn't intentionally go through 
Um, but boy, when it's done with with love and with an uh, uh, with an ethical framework that brings peace to everyone's heart, uh, it's a privilege to to get to do this. So yeah, that's that's what I do. I get to play with the babies and care about the staff and and the families because they're all one package. Uh, we don't get to care about the babies without uh, dealing with the families and the aunts and the uncles and the grandparents that call on the phones and all that stuff. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's so that's my privilege of what I get to do. Yeah, and so then in your work as a as a neonatologist does that also include? Um, some some clinical research, some in court experience. Can you kind of walk through how those also kind of feed into? So everyone has a different track. There are some people who do uh, more classic research in a lab. Um, I live at the bedside. I I uh, do get to do some clinical research um, as we look at what improves the baby's outcomes, um, and we do that sometimes within our own unit. Sometimes it's more powerful and you get bigger numbers when you join with others um, through national organizations or international organizations, sometimes as the case may be. So yes, I've been involved in performance improvement initiatives. Um, Some things I've gotten to do with bringing something called CPAP, uh, looking at how we do that to lower chronic lung disease in babies. I've been very involved in caring for our obese-exposed little ones and caring about their families. Um, and that has been incredibly rewarding to help these moms be part of their baby's solution. Mm-hmm. They feel so guilty. Um, so trying getting to help both the baby and, and the mom has uh, been amazing. So that's part of what I do. And uh, perinatal palliative care, uh, walking with people when they get uh, prenatal diagnoses that um, are scary and um, sometimes are accurate, sometimes not so much. But wh- how do you negotiate that? How do you navigate uh, just the the garbage of words that you get thrown? Um, remembering that the first diagnosis is it's a baby. And then all the other diagnoses, what do we do with that? Keeping track that the first one is, this is a little boy or a little girl, and how do we best care for them for as long as we get to? And I don't know that answer, um, and but I promise to walk with families because even if it's something that we can't heal, which is the heart of palliative care is admitting what we can't do, Um it never dissolves my obligation to care and to provide the best medical advice we can. Sometimes it's not applying something that won't work but could prolong suffering, but um, it's also choosing how do we care well and not prolong suffering that is inappropriate. So it's um, it's never dull, um, <laughs> but... Uh, it is. It remains my privilege, truly, to get to do this. Yeah, and would you say that, like your, that your perspective kind of sets apart the the care and and concern that you're able to apply to these parents? Yeah, it's the um, first. Of all, it's always a team. Um, I'm just one person at the at the bedside, 
the nurses spend hours and hours and hours with you know a couple of kids. Um, we're a fifty bed NICU, so I when I'm in, they're all mine. <laughs> and but yes, there are some parents that I, you get very close with because you walk through these incredible situations with them. Um, and it's hard because a lot of the outside world doesn't understand what they've gone through. So it's fun when they come back and visit um, or send pictures um, to see the little ones. Uh, this one little guy that I got to take care of, he had gone home on a, with a trache, uh, a trach vent, but he was getting decannulated, meaning he didn't need it anymore. And when he, the mom came to visit and wanted to make sure it was there, and when this little guy ran off the elevator to go, see, I was like, oh my gosh, there was there wasn't a dry eye in the waiting room. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, those are the, the things I get to do. I can imagine that when there's parents that are dealing with potentially grave diagnoses that, that not all doctors would necessarily regard the, the, the life at stake in the same way. Like, have you heard from patients about kind of how, um, before they get to you that, Kind of how are their little ones um, regarded by other doctors? Well, I'm, I'm sad to say that there are some doctors who don't think that all lives are inherently sacred. Um, and that's, that's hard. Because um, I, I, I hope everyone only has the very best doctors on the planet. Um, but certainly there are some that don't see the equivalent value in someone that um, has an imperfection of some point um, on a fetal diagnosis. Um, and, you know, let's see, there are babies with all sorts of stuff. And, you know, I just, I come at it from this viewpoint of, I don't view myself as very perfect, so I'm really glad my mom didn't know about. You couldn't see the imperfections, you know, on any kind of fetal diagnosis. Um, but it's such an odd world we live in, where we find out tons and tons of uh, of information about the baby prenatally, and we don't get to meet the person sometimes when parents are really almost pressured to say, um, don't carry this baby to pregnancy, terminate early, um, because there's such and such a thing that's wrong. And that's very sad. It's, that's heartbreaking to me. Um, and now I certainly know women who have made that decision and suffered with it, um, but I wonder if anyone had offered to walk with them, would they made, have made that same decision? Because um, even if it is a, a a diagnosis that is life, it, that the life is going to be short, the only thing that terminating does or aborting um, does is end the life sooner. And I've never met a mom who regretted meeting her baby. Wow, not her. Um, so that's um, that part. It's I'm I'm sad. When I hear moms uh, tell these stories about, oh, I had to do this because the baby had all these things wrong. And I'm like, I'm sorry you never got to, you didn't hold your little one. Um, and 
I worry about how they're going to live with that decision down the road. Um, it's one thing when, for whatever reason, a baby didn't form according to the usual pathway. But what does that mean for how you mourn later on if you are part of your baby's demise? As a, okay, there's things we can't heal. Um, and letting, whether you call it nature taking its course or just staying out of God's way, um, you know, just being with the baby for as long as we can. Um, and because the other unsung story is interrupting a pregnancy that's going just fine leaves mom's hormones in chaos. And there, there is literature that says that the mom's, that sets them up for increased risk of cancer, of, you know, increased mental health issues um, down the road, that just from interrupting the pregnancy that abruptly the hormones are rather chaotic, which is different than when you miscarriage because the hormones actually um, are not quite as elevated um, frequently. And there's there's studies that show that. They're just not as well published in the news. Yeah. And I would love to link um, to link some of those in the show notes um, for my listeners, because a lot of times when there's discussions about pregnancies that do um and early the the and this is happening throughout the medical field the direction of research we see is often shaped by the political leanings and you know this has happened uh, across topics and fields um but in medical research i think that and maybe you can speak to this too but it seems that it seems to chill or, or um, discourage research where the the authors of the research may be afraid that they will be labeled as um, racist or pro-life or, uh, you know, um, transphobic or any of these, you know, oh. things that shape, yeah. you know, politically. Been there um, because the first time someone called me and said, oh, can you please come speak at this event because you're so pro-life? And I was like, mm, I am. And I was like, why do you know that? Um, and because my journey has been just a little bizarre. It really was the babies who saved me because I grew up in a, in a very, um, a family and many of my family members still think I've lost my mind. Um, but they were very pro-abortion um, and still are. And then I started taking care of these little ones. Um, and all of them, they're... Why would it be appropriate to intentionally harm them? Um, so a lot of years later and uh, stuff, but back to the important question you were saying about how the politics can stifle the research. That is so true. Um, and one of the areas that I've really seen that it is in fetal pain, where um, the, gosh, the people are afraid. I think they're, we, t we end up on sides of this issue because people who never take care of real babies, um, people involved in Planned Parenthood, people who have been doing abortions for years and years, kind of don't want to say that the baby could be in pain. And um, the problem is we now take care of babies that it's legal to abort. The edge of viability has prepped down to literally 22 weeks, halfway through a pregnancy. Um, 
And there's increased numbers that are surviving at 21. So it's amazing. But it gets really uncomfortable when you talk about babies being so immature that are viable. Um, it's a long, difficult course. It's not one I take for granted. It is with incredible humility that we care for a person who is about you know the size of your hand, um, these little guys. But they're real people. And I've been smacked by little itty bitty tiny hands if you piss them off because that that hurts or they don't like something or you can watch them their uh, their little eyebrows try to raise up when they hear their parents voices because they've been listening in utero and they recognize them so it is astonishing to see them be comforted by their parents and by the way we're now seeing that their long-term outcomes improve when we ameliorate or remove or try to treat any kind of painful stimulation. Um, so those are no, there's, I don't know any neonatologists who think the pain of their babies is an optional thing. That, that's just not even, it's not a question. So how is it, I've got obstetricians that are still asking that, where all they have to do is walk across the hall to the NICU and see these babies. They hurt and um, and have an opinion. They arrive with an opinion. It is hysterical. I always like <laughs> because usually there's one that's kind of like a laid back one, and then there's the feisty one who's like kicking the other one. Um, and I look at the parents, and I'm like, I know they've been doing this in utero, and so yeah, this is what happens. Um, they arrive who they are, and it's like I say, it's astonishing to watch them unfold um, and become you know, the human beings that they all grow up to be. So. Wow. Wow. They arrive with an opinion. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, when uh, when you're working with these parents, and, and I guess that that's really where a lot of the, the bioethics come into play, is really considering, like, you know, how can we go about being ethical in our profession um, in the face of a, a field uh, that that says that life um, is optional. It is up. It is between uh, a mother and her doctor, and that uh, life is something that can be spared um, if it is in the so-called best interest of um, the the woman in the situation. Um, from a bioethical perspective, I, I've always thought that, you know, the arguments that say that we are pushing ourselves towards a society that is like a handmaid's tale um, by uh, making abortion illegal. I've always thought that it's always the opposite. I think that when we say that it's okay and it's legal to take a life uh, and and leave the the state of that life up to to choice, I think that then we're opening the door for the government to say that it's okay to take lives. It's okay to control lives. I mean, what's your thoughts from a, a, a bioethical perspective on how um, the the direction of of liberty kind of lends uh, in in limiting abortion versus uh, making it uh, more accessible? So, the first of all, I think. The abortion in and of itself, I, you know, in some ways I could care less about the law. I care about changing people's hearts mm -hmm. because 
people chose to value their baby. I I hate the the problem. The ethical dilemma starts immediately with put, pitting a mother against her baby. That the mother infant dyad, which should be this sacrosanct, amazing bond, this false separation uh, of them. And I worry that when we default to, oh, and it's an abortion, what other 40,000 crises have brought the mom to that point? Because the abortion doesn't solve, I don't have housing. The abortion doesn't solve, I don't have a food source. The abortion doesn't solve, I'm being beaten the snot out of by some guy. It doesn't, I heard women who were drug, who were, who were um, sex trafficked, they were intentionally brought to Planned Parenthood because no one would ask questions. So when it becomes too easy to get an abortion, I worry about all the other problems it didn't solve. And this baby is just the last part of, of a whole series of issues that have been now swept aside um, um, even if it's as simple as it's a teenage mom who doesn't know how to continue her life, how do we help her and help her survive in a healthy manner, which, you know, and, and be the, the parent that maybe she wishes she had. So and she's scared of, cause she doesn't know how to do that. There's so many ways to wrap these people in love and a secure society. So that's where the whole abortion, regulating it from a legal end seems to me uh, it doesn't answer all the other essential questions. That when someone comes in saying, if they've been driven to this point, who's there to sit back with them and go, okay, why? Why did we get here? So what other issues happened? And that, that short-circuiting of this conversation with treating a baby like we would a broken appliance. Okay, well, th- we'll just discard it. That's what makes me crazy. This is a this is a human, so this is not just a discardable thing. And by the way, what that does to the mom to be able to continue her life in a healthy way um, is, I think, a story that's not talked about enough. So, so. Yeah, before I even get to, you know, and then, you know, it always comes up. What about rape? What about, you know, all the weird, you know, things? Once again, who is sitting with this, with this child, with the mom that's been raped and said, okay, how do we best get through this? Um, And I think making law for the exceptions means you have not a very good law for most people. So... I, I'm always interested in more conversation when it's a difficult when it's a difficult question, because the other thing about medicine is if you've seen one patient with a particular disease, you've seen one. Because the medical, all the social medical history about every individual is so unique that they're going to handle each situation differently. So I don't like one size fits all. In fact, I don't do anything one size fits all. Um, we go to med school and you learn about basic things about, okay, here's what I can expect. And then you have to apply it to each individual person. Um, 
and go, okay, I got I need to tweak the, the, what we think we're going to do. Um, in the unit, I'll look at parents and I'll say, okay, so here's my plan. And now we're going to see how the baby likes it. And then we'll see um, how we need to tailor it to each individual person. And so I think limiting the abortion conversation to, I think we should always do this or we should always do that is insane because of how complicated this this is. The only thing that I will hopefully always start with is there's two people who are precious and sacred, that mom and that baby. How do I care well for both? I don't understand obstetricians who say they've got two patients who one can become optional when it's inconvenient. That's not okay. Not ever. So how do we, how do we, literally I've got two people that, how do we help them live well? Mm -hmm. I don't know what the answers are going to be for every individual situation, but I do know there's always two people and we're just voting the one that can't speak off the island. Sounds like a bad idea. I agree. I agree. Um, You know, I think that it's, it's, it's so important that we do have, um, doctors with diverse perspectives because we look at um, some of the bodies that have been coming to represent the medical profession as a whole. Um, and if it wasn't if it wasn't for, you know, organizations like the American pro-life uh, obstetrician, is it just, uh, what's it called? APLOG, yeah. Yeah, APLOG. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't for, you know, them being able to step in and, uh, you know, different groups that have stepped in, bringing together doctors that can be on the same page on different and diverse perspectives. Um, you know, I'm so glad that they exist. Uh, when in, in your work with that, have you found that there is um, that there is a prevailing like kind of culture within medicine that is kind of lending itself to dehumanize um, babies before a certain point? Like, can you kind of talk about how um, that dehumanization really takes root within the profession? So just like we have two, almost literally two different news streams where you have a conservative news stream and more liberal news stream, and both people could be at the same event and you would never know because you're like, what did you just see? We're we're getting that within medicine, um, where you have um, people who are okay with euthanasia, who are more comfortable with abortions, compared to people who are saying, uh, "I I signed up to do no harm." Mm-hmm. Remember that Hippocratic oath, and so there are. What's happening is. There are different national organizations that are starting to form to speak for conscience rights. Um, APLOG is just one of them. As a pediatrician and a unitologist, I belong to American College of Pediatricians, ACPEDS, which is a pro-family organization. Um, there's Catholic Medical Association. There's the Catholic or the Christian Medical Dental Association. So there's now. What's happening is there's the formation of all these amazing organizations who believe in the Hippocratic Oath that we took, which to say, I, I promise to do no harm. 
and here's what that means. And I don't get to make up the rules as I go along. Um, these aren't my rules. This is about being, how do I be a good human being? Um, because they're the more traditional, or at least the older groups uh, used to believe that. They they really did. And there's some really good people still there. But the, the top of their organization seem to have become politically motivated. And it is... Um, it's sad. It, it it has made it has driven away a lot of other people of conscience, uh, myself included. Um, and so it's it's I'm actually I'm just heartbroken to see that that's still going on. For my listeners that have never walked with an infant through neonatal care, can you kind of walk through some of the considerations that are necessary when dealing with life at that stage? Um, I know that we've kind of pushed back. Uh, would you say that like has the age the the youngest that we can keep them alive did you say that that was at like at this point with 20 so 22 weeks so term is is 40 weeks uh so 22 weeks um is about uh gestation that's about the youngest that's where the edge of viability has gone down to 22 23 weeks there are cases um of babies surviving at 21 uh weeks um, but those are, that's pretty rare and, um, it's amazing. And you know what, when I first started, you know, 25 ish years ago, the babies that we're saving now, we couldn't have intervened for. It has changed that dramatically that quickly. Wow. Yeah. I mean, to give you an idea back in the seventies, um, Babies who the edge of viability was about a thousand grams and twenty-eight weeks. Now it's more like four hundred grams, so like less than a can of Coke. We're in ounces, um, and they're the size of your hand, and they're twenty-two weeks. They're oh. months earlier, um, which is crazy. Um, so. Yeah, so you know when someone when someone delivers prematurely, now there's variations of premature. Um, you know, the, from the very smallest, um, in, they're going to be in the NICU for m- multiple months because they're born about six months early. So it can you know happen. So every single organ system is immature. It's not just a small baby. So my job is helping the baby safely transition, literally from fetal physiology all the to some the to internal workings that are closer to term so and that's by the way part of what's so important is just because the baby was born doesn't mean the internal workings are different because the fetal period of development actually goes from 9 weeks gestation all the way to term we've the one of the other things that's really important the whole trimester system, that that doctors didn't make that up. That came from lawyers out of Roe v. Wade. So the trimester means nothing. Medically, it means absolutely zero. It was just a way to say you will have less rights at different gestational ages. I, doctors didn't create that. The embryology is all of your organ systems between zero and eight weeks, the end of the eighth week, that's the embryonic period of development. That's when all the different organ systems are, are forming. 
the fetal period of development is from the end of that eighth week, so the beginning of the ninth week, all the way to term. That That's fetal development. That just means all the different organ systems are there in their rudimentary form. And then they continue to, to develop. Sometimes that means literally change in a three-dimensional configuration, in addition to getting bigger um, and more robust of the cells and all the different things they need to do. But sometimes before you even know you're pregnant, so we're talking the end of eight weeks, everything's there. Um, and, and now it's just a matter of allowing development to happen. Uh, so yeah, the whole trimester thing makes me crazy. I'm like, that's not... It's just it didn't doc. It doesn't mean anything. It just means that some lawyers could divide by three because they had nine, you know, nine months. I'm like, oh, way to go. So, I don't think that most people know that that's not um, that's not a uh, system or an organization of the gestation period that's taught in med schools. It's not something that doctors refer to. It, it, it has it has leaked into med schools. It, that's what's so sad. It is your. It absolutely is leaked into med schools, but and no one's questioning where does it come from. Why wow. did it come from doctors? It did not come from doctors. Oh no. my gosh! No, and it embryologically is it doesn't mean anything. Wow, wow. Um, when we are looking at you know how, like you said, I think that for many, um. The goal is how do we get to the point where we can change hearts and minds to to realize and to recognize the weight of these lives. And, um, you know, I, I I remember when you we, we talked a little bit before the podcast you had, um, you, you talked about just asking a mom about, you know, congrats, just saying congratulations that she that she was having a baby and asking her if she had picked out a name. And it's like, how do we get to that point where we can offer that kind of humanity um, to, to, to just encourage people to see these lives as lives? Yeah. I think it starts with the mom seeing her own life as valuable. Um, and I think we have an entire society that it's so easy to think, I'm I'm not worth much, so what you know? Why should I continue? And helping people find how worthwhile they are, so that of course your baby is also precious and worthwhile, um, is a huge undertaking. Um, it's why one of the things that I I love doing is it's not just I never just get to care about the baby although that's my primary but it's about worrying about the families um, and making sure that they're okay because it is a roller coaster in the NICU and some days are good and some days are bad and um, so just reteaching that lives are worthwhile always um and it doesn't mean it's going to be fine. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It means you are, without any arguments, you are inherently wonderful and intentionally made. Um, 
Uh, I'm sorry people have lost believing in a God who loves them um, because many people come from families that are broken. It didn't know how to love them very well, but that doesn't ever take away their inherent value. Um, so I think changing hearts and minds starts with everyone getting to find that they're valuable um, and important. Um and there's none of us are can be thrown away by anyone else because then we we miss something miraculous um, yes. about each other. Yeah. Have you? Um, if we could talk a little bit about the influence of um, kind of how testing has shaped the the outlook on on neonatal care. I'm sure that there's good and bad ways that this has influenced how we regard the baby in the womb. Sure. So, you know, the prenatal testing, when we get to find out, you know, you know, if the baby's developing okay, and if not, getting the baby to deliver at a center that has the capacity to care for some special needs um, is really is a wonderful way to use this to help keep the baby safe. Um, the problem is the prenatal testing has gotten earlier and earlier and earlier, and the the uh, societies for maternal fetal medicine, ACOG, uh, one of the genetic society, instead recently changed who they're testing. So it used to be they would do some of these expanded genetic testing um, and prenatal testing on um, just people who are at higher risk so that the predictive value of the test was likely to tell you a true positive as opposed to get a, something that was false. They changed it to, you know, why don't we test everyone? By testing everyone, you decrease the chances that the test is truly positive, that positive predictive value. So, and the problem with that is, so now if you're testing really early, like at 10 weeks, and there's maybe, they say, oh, there's a chance that there's a genetic problem. That could be true, but there's a bigger chance that that's not accurate now. And the problem is that they'll, they'll couch, I've heard people couch it in terms of, well, if you do an abortion now, it's safer. So you should just do that. Which And, you know, in the readings, they they admit, yeah, that means sometimes the babies who are healthy are being aborted. Is this, I mean, and which is just so sad. I know people who were told their babies had, quote, lethal anomalies and their, and their child didn't have it. I know people who are told the baby's got a life-ending anomaly, and um, yes, the baby needed to be in the NIC, but we've sent the baby home. They lived. So um, I just wish we would have a little humility about how we go about doing this. That And you, know, the, you have to be honest about why are you looking? If you, because there was an actual article I read out of New York where... The doctor said, yeah, we intentionally asked parents if they wanted to get the early teenage, the free cell DNA, which can be done in about 10 weeks. 
if you get this, would you be interested in having an abortion? They selected people who they knew would be open to doing this. Yeah, let's test them sooner. And I just, they didn't even, I don't know if they took the time to get confirmatory ultrasounds to say that this is really there. Um, so I, I, you know, and I, and I don't want to paint with too big a brush stroke because I certainly know obstetricians who are trying to utilize these tests wisely and, you know, and they'll do confirmatory stuff and try to make sure. But there are some people that I worry are not. And I fear, I fear the insurance company industry that sometimes is not always doing the best medicine. That what if they say, oh, yeah, we're only going to pay for these early fetal tests, but we're not going to, you know, pay for confirmatory tests. They're going to pick one or the other. It just, oh my gosh. I mean, they haven't done that yet, but I can see that because that's what insurance does. They say, well, you know, we're going to try to do the least amount. This isn't about patient safety. And it's still a baby. I don't care what the prenatal test is. I don't care what the diagnosis is. Let's go back to diagnosis number one. It's a baby. Um, So how do we keep this baby safe? And um, it's like I say, do you need to know this information? Does it really change anything? Um, If you're using this information to decide whether you're going to actually intentionally terminate the baby, that's sad. Um, as a, or I, I really feel worried about the people who don't even understand that if they go and say, oh, sure, prenatal testing, that sounds great. Let's find out more about this child and don't realize that there are there are some obstetricians who use that to offer termination. And and um, I know I had high-risk pregnancies. I know friends who have had high-risk pregnancies who said, even people who weren't high-risk, once you get prenatal testing, you get people asking you about terminating at every visit. And it's nuts. Like, back off. I was looked at askance because I didn't want to get an amniocentesis because amniocentesis comes with a risk that the baby that could be harmed, that you could go into preterm labor. Why would I get that? I had an ultrasound that was fine. I thought if I get to have this baby, great. And then we'll figure out what we're going to do. I wasn't going to risk the health of the pregnancy and this little one by going to change what I was going to do because there was nothing they were going to find that was going to convince me that it would be appropriate to intentionally end this child's life. Well, that about prenatal testing. Wow. That's so important for parents to know, because I think that, um, you know, before I had spoken with you, I didn't, I had no idea about these dynamics that happen within, it's not just uh, within neonatology, but, you know, you and I are talking about these are stages that um, a woman would be thinking her OBGYN would be trustworthy, uh, you know, things that early, early in the pregnancy um, could could really pose some risks. Um, I know that you had talked about uh, how Iowa in particular is doing a great job in neonatology. Could you kind of walk through what their state has been doing, whether that's at a policy level or 
um, within the hospitals that has made their uh, neonatology so successful? Well, I think one of the, what they've done besides, you know, they have care plans, but they have everyone goes into these deliveries thinking we can succeed. So if a parent wants to de- deliver at 22 weeks, they're all in. They're as opposed to other hospitals who um, have kind of these unsung policies which, which say, you know, we don't resuscitate babies below a certain gestational age. But the parents don't knew that, know that when they walk in the door. So if hospital, you know, A says, we only resuscitate babies down to 24 weeks. If a mom comes in at 23, maybe they'll get her to another hospital that does, but sometimes they don't. And then you've got a mom who delivers and she's like, why aren't you doing anything? And they say, well, we we don't resuscitate those babies, but a different hospital might. So you really have to do your homework and ask if you're going to deliver at a hospital, what's your plan? Now, I am not saying that every single hospital on the planet has to be prepared to take care of an edge of viability baby. That's ridiculous. We don't make cardiac care happen at every single community hospital. But if you're an adult and you come in with um, a new, uh, you know, a heart condition and you need to be flown over to a hospital to get cardiac care, that's what happens. We transport you as quickly as possible. If you come into a hospital that's not prepared to take care of a baby who delivers prematurely, what's the hospital's plan? Where are they going to send you? Are they going to get you to a hospital that will take care of that premature baby or or not? Because there are people that preemptively sometimes make those decisions. And once again, exactly like everyone reacts to a diagnosis differently, to make a decision about life or death based on just gestational age alone at this point is completely unethical. There's there's other, in fact, there's an actual study that showed five factors that can tell you about chances of survival and chances of survival um, with, with varying degrees of neurodevelopmental problems. So if you're a singleton pregnancy, multiples, those have higher risks, okay, if you get prenatal steroids, that really, really helps the the baby's lungs mature. This helps, you know, and not a ha- uh, higher risk for bleeds in the brain. That helps it's protective. So this is great. Little girls do better than little boys statistically. They are they are stronger. Man, t- give me a little girl, no problem. Um, they um, they really do better. Um, it's it's not a bias. It's just okay. This is this the stats. Um, their birth weight, you know, so if they're, you know, bigger weight and gestation counts. So there's kind of been this, what I call preemie calculator that's been formed. But what's really fascinating is in addition to those five things, the most recent study says the hospital that you deliver at matters every bit as much as your gestational age. So that means if you go to a hospital that is prepared to deal with you, there's a better chance that you're going to make it if you go to one that's like, yeah, no, because I got news. If you go to a place that says no one below 24 weeks should live, then their stats are zero. No one survives. So 
Wow. All of those factors matter. So like I say, uh, if you're, if, you know, say a 25-weeker, 25 weeks gestation, mom got prenatal steroids, singleton, female, and they're guessing the fetal weight is like 750 grams. The chances of that baby surviving is like 80 to 90%. And the chances, if you're if you're at our hospital, because you have to also know your individual institution, if you're, you know, what are your stats, the chances of that baby doing well are amazing. Yeah. Now, no one comes with a guarantee. I every so often I'll get a parent that says, well, if you can't guarantee me everything, I'm like, I couldn't guarantee you things if you delivered it term. <laughs> there is no guarantee. I've checked under the armpits. It's, there's no return policy. There's no directions. None of those things come with babies. Um, but I promise we'll show up and care and try to do our very best. And if I think that there's a different institution, a bigger university, a bigger someone that has a technology that your baby would benefit from, we're going to, we'll get you there. Other than that, we're going to do our very best right where we're at. Those are some great considerations. Like what kind of, um, so we've talked about how trying to, if we can find out, you know, what age that a hospital will resuscitate it. What are some other considerations that new parents should have in mind when they're deciding on a hospital to choose as their delivery place. Are you comfortable with your doctor? Are they going to be there? Who are there hospitalists that'll be there? Um, what age? What what's the what is the capability of your individual hospital? And if they are if they don't have the capability, like there are some very rural you know places that they're doing everything they can, but there's there's limits. Then who is there? Who are the who do they partner with for a transport service? Who are, you know, and so then what, what's the secondary, you know, the second hospital that you would transport to? Usually hospitals have different alliances and transport regions. Um, I work at a regional transport center. So there's a bunch of small hospitals within, you know, around the state that we send our transport team out to. So who do you transport to um, if you're, if you're the baby's in trouble? Um, are good things to know in addition to just that gestational age. Um, and the biggest thing I would say is do you be careful about what you want as far as those fetal, you know, premature diagnoses to what when you walk into your obstetrician and they start pushing lots and lots of, oh, we need to know this and this and we need to do these tests. Maybe <laughs> do. Um now, on the other hand, I would also flip over, there is an increased number of home births and home deliveries, which can be wonderful. Um, I know doulas and nurse midwives, and there's some wonderful people. But I I also, because I'm a neonatologist, I see everything when everything, when things go wrong. Um, there is, there's a reason that hospitals exist and, and, maternal mortality as well as fetal mortality have decreased with having coming into the hospital. I get it. I don't love medicine. I don't like pills. I know I'm a doctor, but I don't like this stuff. But um, it, but um, be careful because I've also seen tragedies happen with home deliveries when they didn't get to the hospital fast enough and something went wrong. And so, you know, people who say, oh, I, I want things to be more natural. Well, death is natural too. So 
I mean, I hate to be so blunt, but like, guys, oh, <laughs> please keep your baby and and mom as safe as we can. Like I say, I I may know of beautiful deliveries that have happened in homes, but as the neonatologist, I get called when something goes wrong. So I'm like, I don't want anything to go wrong. Please come come into the hospital. Um, and if in find a hospital you trust, find people you trust, you know, that can be there to keep everyone as safe as possible. Because um, emergencies happen. That's why I'm there. So how do we help out? So yeah, yeah. Bad I, from, midwives are wonderful. I'm not saying anything bad about them. <laughs> I promise. I think that listening to you, there's just there's so much that. I, I've I've just learned just talk I could talk to you for hours. When I spoke to someone in a previous episode that was a communications professional, he talked about how when we're having controversial discussions that we should try to begin from a point of consensus. From working with so many babies, what are five things that hold true about babies and and needle and neonatal care and and these early stages of development that are that are true across deliveries um that are something that holds true for every single delivery that we can come to a consensus on about every single birth i have never been to a delivery where it wasn't a human being <laughs> i know that sounds silly but you sometimes when like People are actually arguing about um, if a baby was born al- if a, a baby is born alive, do we still have the option of you know maybe not caring for them? I'm like, no, 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 no. It's always a human being, and a so consent. The baseline starting point is human beings are wonderful. Human beings are sacred and worthy of our care, and just. Always. There's not a human being that's ever been born that isn't worthy of us caring for. So yeah, starting from there. Um, there number two, though, is there's stuff that I can't heal. So showing up and evaluating is really important and having people who value that you're comfortable value the life of your baby. Um, but also are going to be honest to say, and by the way, I don't make life and death decisions. I follow the baby. So is if the baby responds to treatment, then we're going to go this way. If the baby doesn't respond to treatment, then we're going to go this way. So it's a, it's a baby. They're always worthy of our love and care. And whether or not the baby responds to our interventions I always have an obligation to care. Nothing relieves me of that. Um, whether or not the baby responds, I still, I will walk with families um, for as long as we get to. And we figure out in their circumstances what optimal care looks like. And you meet people where they're at. Some people... Um, I met a family, they literally, they were migrant workers and they didn't have electricity. That baby needed different care than a family, a different family who wanted different operations and different things done. The other family could, 
it never meant I abandoned that little one. We, but we had to walk together to figure out what was right for them in that situation in the midst of caring for all of the other children and all the other obligations. How do we love this little one? Um, so, um, mom and the, I guess the other, so we don't make life and death decisions. We follow the baby and then, and we always have an obligation to care. Um, and we have to take care of each other. Love. In, in situations we would never have chosen to show up for, um, we have to take care of each other. Um, and know that decision-making in a crisis is the worst possible time to make a decision. So we sometimes say some stuff that's unkind and a little short. So being forgiving of yourself and of what comes out of your mouth um, and 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 giving people leeway to be a little crazy in a crisis mm-hmm. um, and go, okay, I'm going to come back in and let me replay what I think I heard. Is this really what you meant? And how do I, <laughs> how, let's talk about this. Um, so just knowing that we're, we're human and while we are all inherently valuable, we're all inherently flawed. So how, how do we still care about each other knowing that we are both um, sacred and not quite right? <laughs> so um that's that is part of the amazing thing about being a human being. Yes. So yeah. I my um my mom worked in OBGYN and in the in the same vein of giving the patients a, a safe space uh to say what they need to say. There were many times that they would need to leave the room. So and and like I say, and sometimes you just kind of shrug your shoulders, but I'm like, oh boy. Um, and once again, giving people space yes. <laughs> to do their thing um, and not judge, but sometimes gently ask the question, is that what you really mean? Because um, that might not be helpful in the long run. Thank you so, so much for taking this time out of your schedule and the important work that you do. I I just can't thank you enough for being willing to come on and talk about this important, important topic. I really appreciate it. It's my privilege to get to share about it.